Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn why one monkey species might imitate another species' accent. Then, you'll learn about a new way to think about how humans use information with author Caleb Scharf. Let's satisfy some curiosity. When you move somewhere new, you might find yourself adopting the local accent and using local idioms. That makes sense. Matching other people's style of speaking can cut down on miscommunication and conflict. And it turns out that monkeys think so, too. Scientists have discovered that certain primates adopt their neighbor's accent to keep the peace in the jungle. This research focused on two types of squirrel-sized monkeys living in the Amazon rainforest. One species, called the pied tamarin, is critically endangered and keeps to a very specific region of the rainforest. The other species, the red-handed tamarin, is hardier and spread across the Amazon. And that means it sometimes encroaches on the pied tamarin's turf. The two species compete for the same resources, so things can get ugly when their paths cross. But sometimes a stern warning can prevent physical violence. Each species has a set of calls for different purposes, like wooing a potential mate or warning a rival they're too close for comfort. They're sort of like words or phrases that make up a larger monkey language. The two tamarins have a similar set of calls, but they use slightly different accents. It's like American English versus British English. They're the same language, but Americans say tomato and Brits say tomato. Or Americans say Legos and Brits say Lego. When similar species of other animals take up the same territory, the groups can sometimes change things up to cut down on competition. Often, that change is done to differentiate themselves. They might evolve different wing markings or mating rituals to ensure nobody gets confused. But the opposite can also happen. Birds and frogs are known to match their calls to other nearby species to make communication easier. Researchers from Anglia Ruskin University wondered if the same might be true of these overlapping tamarins. After all, the easier it is for someone to understand your warning call, the easier it is for them to obey it. To find out, they compared recordings of 15 tamarin troops' calls from three different spots throughout the rainforest. One, where they knew the different species lived together, and two, where they didn't. Sure enough, in the shared region, the red-handed tamarin's calls sounded a lot more like their neighbors. The technical term for adopting another species' accent is asymmetric call convergence. And this was the first time scientists found primates doing it. This is an important step in our understanding of how species interact when they share territory. When animals want to keep the peace, many set themselves apart. But tamarins take a different tack. When you can't beat them, join them. You know, information is kind of like an animal. It evolves, it mutates, and the better it is at surviving, the further it spreads. In a way, information is alive. And today's guest says that's not just a metaphor. Humans and information have evolved together in a symbiotic relationship, kind of like the bacteria in our guts. One of us couldn't survive without the other. Caleb Scharf is the director of the Columbia Astrobiology Center and the author of the new book, The Ascent of Information, Books, Bits, Genes, Machines, and Life's Unending Algorithm. And he told us what led him down this particular path of thinking. It really started with an observation about the nature of us as a species. 
So something kind of unique about humans that we generate and use and propagate all of this information that is not encoded in our DNA. It's not encoded in our genes, and yet it persists through time with us. And it's become this essential part of what we are, the ability to retain information generation to generation and, and so on and so on. And of course, today, our informational world has kind of exploded on this exponential growth curve. And so what got me interested and started me writing the book was asking the question of, so what's really going on here? You know, this is kind of unique to, to humans and increasingly demands so much of us as a species for all the benefits it, it confers. So I wanted to look into that to really figure out, you know, so what are the benefits that we get from this externalized information and what are the burdens? And that took me on a very long and intricate journey into some pretty deep things. But I, you know, I ended up calling that externalized information the data ohm, a bit like the genome or the microbiome. I had to give it a name and that seemed appropriate. So yeah, so it, it started with a pretty simple question. And you said that humans were the only species that really uses this? Well, it seems to be. I mean, other species generate and produce structures. Um, you know, birds build nests, termites build nests, beavers build dams. And, and obviously, all organisms do imprint things about themselves on the external world. But it's not clear that any other organism on Earth really uses symbolic representation of information like humans has language as complex and sophisticated as humans, or really sort of leave stuff deliberately for subsequent generations. You know, it's not clear that, you know, gophers have a, a booming literature industry, for example, and other such things. There really does seem to be this kind of difference, distinct difference between us and other organisms. And it really began way back, 200,000 years ago. And we see evidence of that in cave paintings, in tool making, and so on, that you know, there's something about Homo sapiens, there may have been something about our hominid cousins as well, who didn't make it through, to do with our brains, to do with our social cohesion, where we really started instantiating information in the world around us in a way that persisted and became a part of us. You know, you said you wanted to explore when you were writing this book, the good and the bad things to come from information. That's interesting to me. Like, we think that information has helped us develop as a species. Obviously, there's some drawbacks, but it, is that because the information itself is really good or bad, or just the fact that we're, we're exchanging it is good and bad? Can, can you explore that a little bit? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, one piece of it, as you just indicated, is almost the quality of information. You know, not all information is the same. Right? So, you know, a million cat videos arguably has less to tell us and, and do for us than you know, a book on how to cure cancer. Right? And actually, you know, we have some ways of quantifying the utility of information. Some of that goes into deep ideas in what's called information theory. But it also goes into relating information to survival. Good information helps you mitigate risk. Right, in your choices, both as individuals and, and as a society. But there, there are downsides to this because you don't always know whether information is an accurate representation of something in the world. Right? And of course, we've dealt with 
you know, fake news and misinformation for a while now, actually throughout human history, but it's sort of become a bigger deal now because of the, the degree of connection we have with each other. But then on top of all of that, there's an energy burden and a resource burden because information doesn't just exist in nothing. Information is built out of stuff. It's built out of matter. It's built out of energy. You know, whether it's the printed words on a page or it's the, the electronic, you know, ones and zeros in a, in a piece of silicon, that is a physical instantiation of information. If it's physical, you have to use energy to make it happen. And today, our electronic digital world is growing so rapidly. The amount of information and the resources that are required to sustain that are becoming a very significant part of our energetic burden and therefore also the burden on the planetary environment. So there's a bunch of things that kind of take you away from the benefits of data and indicate that there's significant burden here. So, yeah, information definitely has a dark side. Again, that was Caleb Scharf, the director of the Columbia Astrobiology Center and the author of the new book, The Ascent of Information, Books, Bits, Genes, Machines, and Life's Unending Algorithm. Caleb will be back tomorrow to explain how the data ohm might affect extraterrestrial civilizations. All right, well, let's recap what we learned today. Well, we learned that primates actually change their accents to keep the peace with other species. When a red-handed tamarin crosses paths with a pied tamarin, it'll alter its warning call to adopt the other species' way of speaking. And that helps it cut down on miscommunication and avoid a fight. This is the first time we've seen this in primates, and it's an important step in our understanding of how species interact. Cody, I have not adopted a southern accent to get along with people here in North Carolina yet. Yet. Sometimes I remember when I was living in Texas, it, it did start to come out. But, you know, we'll see. We'll see. My problem is like, why do they keep giving monkeys names that sound like other things? Tamarind <laughs> sounds like tamarind, the uh, sort of fruit thing that comes in like a big bean pod that is used in Thai food. And then also macaques and macaques. Like there's a bird. Oh. right? It's like a parrot. I always think people are talking about parrots when they're talking about monkeys. Every time. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Interesting. Wait, I need to. Am I wrong? Oh, macaw. It's a macaw parrot. Macaque monkey, macaw parrot. It's so confusing. I'm, I'm forever lost. This was a journey. <laughs> it was. You know, if I were you, I'd probably adopt that accent pretty quick because the last time I was in the UK, I was in Britain for like a week and I felt compelled to adopt the British accent. I didn't because I'm respectful of other cultures, but I got to say, literally one of my favorite things is hearing other people's impression of American accents. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I love it. I cannot get enough of it. Anytime. If you live somewhere besides the U.S. and you have a good American accent, please leave us a voicemail. Yeah. 312-596-5208. Yeah. Or email us a recording to curiosityatdiscovery.com. I just, I can't get enough. It's very great. I will say y'all is like the most useful English word and more of us need to adopt it. We don't have a second person plural and we need one. And that one's great. I use it all the time. Nice. 
And we learn that humans create and retain and pass along information in a way that no other species seems to do. And Caleb Scharf calls that externalized information the data-ome. It's like a microbiome or a genome. And just like the stuff we find in other ohms, information can be useful or useless, or good or bad. That's important to keep in mind as we share information because it takes energy and resources to actually store it. And we don't want the environmental costs to outweigh the benefits we reap from the information we have. You know, I actually use a service that automatically deletes all of my tweets that are older than six months old. So I <laughs> clean up after myself. That's, that's not to save the planet, though. That's to save your rep. Nope, to save the planet. <laughs> The writer for today's first story was Steffi Drucker. Our managing editor is Ashley Hamer, who is also an audio editor on today's episode. Our producer and lead audio editor is Cody Goff. We're going to store some pretty useful information in a new podcast for you. So join us again tomorrow to learn something new in just a few minutes. I mean, really, it's just a responsible use of the data own. And until then, stay curious. Stay curious.